<coughs> this is from the book of Serenity, case 70. Jin Shan asks about nature. The introduction. One who hears the elephants crossing the river is still affected by the current. One who hears that the nature of life is unborn is still held back by life. If you go on talking about before concentration and after concentration, making bamboo shoots and making bamboo ropes, you will be marking the boat when the sword is long gone. Kicking the wheel of potential into motion, how can one particularly travel down the one road? Let's try to bring it up. The main case. Master Jinshan asked Master Zhushan, clearly knowing the unborn nature of life, why are we stayed by life? Zhushan said, bamboo shoots will eventually become bamboo. But if you use them now for bamboo rope, can you make them serve the purpose? Jinshan said, later on, you'll be enlightened on your own. Jushan said, I'm just this way. What is your meaning? Jinshan said, this is the monastery superintendent's quarter. This is the cook's quarter. Jushan then bowed. The verse, empty and at ease, without dependence, lofty and serene, untrammeled, home and country peaceful, those who arrive are rare. A little bit of power divides ranks and grades. The fluid, clear mind and body is beyond right and wrong. Right and wrong ended. Standing alone on earth, there is no beaten track. So tomorrow, we go back home. The session ends and we go home. And this is a, a quite an incredible experience, not necessarily easy or lack of challenges. But it definitely is moving something, shifting something in us. There is some sense of discovering something within, getting in touch with something feeling some sense of evening what is uneven, what seems to be uneven. And then often after Sashin, there's that question practitioners ask, where did it go a week or two later or three days later? I did get in touch with something. I wasn't dreaming. But then I went back to whatever I went back to. And all these people, and all kinds of circumstances, and all kinds of stuff. 
and it seems to interfere with that sense of equanimity, peace, at ease. So this is, this is a great challenge that we have to, to keep it alive. And to ask, does it really get in the way? It seems to get in the way, but does it? So the verse begins with saying, empty and at ease without dependence, lofty and serene, untrammeled. unhindered. How do we arrive at such a state of being? What are the obstacles that stand in the way? And what are the steps we think we need to take to overcome these obstacles? Here, at home, wherever we are. Where is that place? When I first started to read about to read about Buddhism, books about Buddhism, I remember being fascinated by the idea of a path that leads to realization. And at the same time, I felt quite perplexed about the meaning of realization. What is it? It seemed like a reference to an elusive state of being that's beyond the dimension of everyday life. As if it exists outside of daily challenges and personal hindrances. Incredibly fascinating and totally out of reach. And it remained that way for quite a while until I realized that instead of searching for what I thought it might be, or what I imagined it to be, I needed to completely let go of the idea of finding something that is not available and then radically change the way I was interacting with life. Examine the way I am moving about. What are the forces that are operating in the background of speech and action? or thought, speech, and action. What's behind that? Right? Because we assume that that's the way to go, and we assume, with that assumption, we think that I have to go somewhere else. In other words, instead of relying on an assumption that the freedom of realization is hindered by our current circumstances in life, or by the level of our understanding or attainment, we can flip it around and examine the way we interact with life, become less convinced that everything can be figured out through analytical process, or arrived at through that process, and look at what gives rise to the assumption of being held back. When we view life primarily through the spectrum of our thinking mind or mind consciousness, our ability to experience liberation cannot go beyond what the mind conjures up. 
and we inevitably remain within the limitation of that faculty, or we reduce ourselves to that faculty. And because we are so used to following our thoughts, it makes sense to stay within that sphere and not recognize that it produces the very sense of limitation we're trying to find liberation from. We can have a pretty clear intellectual understanding of fundamental Buddhist teachings and even experience it personally through Kensho and still be blind to the kind of thoughts and emotions that are produced by our habit energy or be blind to how they still affect the way we move in life to some degree. This koan brings up a dialogue between two Dharma brothers who both have finished formal study under Master Dijang, Jinshan being the older of the two. And so for the sake of revolving the Dharma and furthering Zhushan's understanding, he asked a question that pertains to all of us. Clearly knowing the unborn nature of life, why are we stayed by life? We get involved with the practice from being entangled by life. And since this is the path of liberation, naturally we think that at some point we will clarify our fundamental true nature and become liberated from the entanglements. Conventionally, we think this way. So this question makes sense. Clearly knowing the unborn, undying nature of life, how can it be possible that we still get entangled? By what? By that which does not exist? How? What does it mean to know the unborn nature of life? what we refer to as life is an abundant non-stop expression that manifests all around which doesn't begin with a particular life form when a particular life form is born and it doesn't end when that particular life form dissolves which is what I was talking about yesterday in terms of impermanence and the Buddha said that impermanence is one of the most difficult aspects of existence to understand because everybody understands it. Because everybody understands it intellectually. Of course, who can refute the fact that everyone has to face sickness, old age, and death? Who can refute the fact that sooner or later we all have to let go of everyone we love and everything we have? We get it. But we don't. We get it, yet we don't live by that understanding. No, while we get it, most people live their lives in complete denial 
of the meaning of impermanence, not the meaning of the word, but what it means in our lives. So to clarify the meaning of Jinshan's question, we can ask it in a slightly different way. Clearly knowing that everything is constantly changing, that we are all of an impermanent nature, of we are impermanent, that death is certain. Why are we still holding on to the idea of a fixed and unchanging self? Why do we create, protect, and defend an illusion? And then get entangled by all its cherished possessions, by what it is grasping. And we get entangled by everyday life, by people, by situations, fluctuations in sense of self-worth, by our own feelings, feelings of other people, even here, even during Sishin. You know, we hear a correction. Somebody's telling us, we're not doing it this way, we're doing it that way. Immediately, something in us wants to jump up and respond and react and argue. Where does it come from? How does it arise? And why do we take it so seriously? And Zazen is, is a way to expose, expose it, to show us how we get triggered before we get triggered. Right? Because we can only get triggered if there is something in us that responds to it. There's nothing there, there's nothing there. Then it's easy. If somebody says, you got to put your hands this way, it's okay, no problem. That's easy. Because there's nothing there that will react. But then something says, I don't want you to tell me this. And then we follow along. So there is some, there's a sense of something that is fixed while we, are, we clearly know that everything is changing. So what gives rise to that? So to shed light on this process, we can briefly look at the teachings of the Yogacara school, which is an early Mahayana school studying the nature of consciousness. Yogacara means the application of meditation. So according to the, the Buddhist psychology described by Yogacara school, our mind has eight aspects or eight consciousnesses. The first five are based on the physical senses. They are the consciousnesses that manifest when our eyes see form, our ears hear sound, our nose smells an odor, tongue tastes something, 
our skin touches an object to feel something, a tactile sensation. The sixth one, mind consciousness, arises when our mind contacts an object of perception, or it's called the thinking mind. Often we refer to it as the thinking mind. And the thinking mind, in Buddhism, the mind is a sense organ. It's no more than a sense organ. Now it's much more elaborate, com uh, complicated, or complex sense organ, not like the nose or the ear. It takes all the messages from all the other five senses and it sorts them out, tries to figure out something, comes up with an image or a picture or a conclusion by which we move. So it's a governing sense organ. The seventh, called manas, <clears throat> is the part of consciousness that gives rise <coughs> and the support of the mind consciousness. So it gives rise to that and it supports the mind consciousness, the sixth one. The eighth one, the store consciousness, also known as the alaya vijnana, is the ground or base of the other seven consciousnesses. And the function of the store consciousness is to store the, the impressions of everything we have encountered in the past, some of which we may have a recollection of, and most we may not remember at all. This, is all, this also includes impressions of past lives and impressions of our interactions with other people and their own store consciousness. So parents, family, friends, random people we have met. And these impressions are called seeds. And the store consciousness simply keeps them at the state of dormant potential that comes to fruition based on the triggers and circumstances in our lives. The store consciousness itself does not discriminate between good seeds and bad seeds. It just stores them. So the falsehood of a self and the origin of our attachment arise from the relationship between manas, the seventh consciousness, and the alaya vijnana, the eighth consciousness. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, the relationship between manas and the store consciousness is very subtle. Manas arises from store consciousness and takes a part of store consciousness to be the object of its love, the object of itself, and it holds onto it firmly. It regards this part of store consciousness as a separate entity, a self, and grasps onto it firmly. Manas attaches to the store consciousness just like a small child who clings to her mother's skirt, not allowing her to walk naturally. It's a nice description, right? Not allowing us to be authentic. In the same way, manas hinders the functioning of the store consciousness and gets in the way of transforming the seeds. 
And he says, much of our suffering results from this wrong perception on the part of manas. So in a nutshell, this process can be described as such. We interact with the world through messages perceived, received through the five senses or five consciousnesses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, body, as tactile sensations, and then the mind gets involved because the mind gets those impressions and creates something out of that. The information we receive is projected in the eighth consciousness and triggers existing seeds that are then taken up by manas, which actually resides within the eighth consciousness, and then projected into the sixth consciousness, the thinking mind. There, we find the self. But it's not born there. It's only projected into the thinking mind. But it's very convincing. And it feels very real. And that image becomes the focal point of our attention. It dictates the way we move through life. And this is what we need to become aware of and learn to transform, learn to work with. Meditation is sometimes referred to as the process of transformation at the base, which means transforming the way we encounter the existing contents of the storehouse, storehouse consciousness that contains what was left there from past experiences. And it's not just past experiences. It's also, it contains the new and fresh experiences or the impressions of those experiences. So it's constantly collecting and storing impressions. So Tiknatan writes about this, says, Our mind is a field in which every kind of seed is sown. Seeds of compassion, joy and hope. Seeds of sorrow, fear and difficulties. Every day our thoughts, words and <coughs> deeds plant new seeds in the field of our consciousness. And what these seeds generate becomes the substance of our lives. They are both wholesome and unwholesome seeds in our mind field, sown by ourselves and our parents, schooling, ancestors, and society. If you plant wheat, wheat will grow. If you act in wholesome way, you will be happy. If you act in an unwholesome way, you will water seeds of craving, anger, and violence in yourself and in others. The practice of mindfulness helps us identify all the seeds in our consciousness and with that knowledge we can choose to water only the ones that are most beneficial. As we cultivate the seeds of joy and transform seeds of suffering in ourselves, 
understanding, love, and compassion will flower. And this is extremely relevant. I mean, the mass shootings, right? Massacres. People killing people. Right? The guy in, in Buffalo. Just pure hatred. But he didn't wake up one morning and decided to kill other people or to hate other people. This is an example of seeds that are watered through exposure, social media, over time. The seeds are there. And if we're not careful, we will naturally go in that direction. Because those seeds, something will trigger them. They'll sprout. They'll react. We read something. We see something. We hear. Something in us responds. It was there. It was already there. And then we keep gravitating, gravitating in those directions. And of course, social media is built on that. The algorithms identify it. It's like they are linked to the Alaya They know. It doesn't matter what seeds you have. It'll water it for you. So it's linked directly to that. And it's going to water it, nurture it, and it will take hold of mind consciousness. And thoughts will lead to words, will lead to actions. It doesn't mind, right? It, the alive jnana, doesn't mind what seeds will be nurtured and what will not. As Thich Nhat Hanh said, the good and bad is, happen, it happens later. Good actions, bad actions will happen later as a result of that. So we don't know what kind of seeds we have. So that's why it is said that the work of meditation begins at the second thought. Since we don't have control over the kind of seeds we have that have been stored in our store consciousness. And we can control the thoughts they generate. We don't know what will be triggered. But we get triggered. The first thought will arise. There's nothing we can do about that. But if we know how to meet the first thought with a different kind of second thought, then we can choose to not nurture it. So when we get reactive, or we feel reactive, we don't have to get reactive. It doesn't mean, well, I feel this way, therefore you should sit here or stand here and listen to me. Because I have something to say. I don't have anything to say. But I'm like a puppet on the string. So I think I have something to say to you. 
So to, to make that buffer to watch and observe the reactivities within and to learn to quell it, to calm it down. How? By not nurturing, by abandoning, we say. It's not bad or good that those seeds are triggered. It's just easy, it's just natural. What's next is what matters, or can be good or bad, we can say. Now, if we understand that what happened in the past is affecting the way we react to life today, we can learn to bring acceptance to each moment, meet the thoughts and emotions with awareness, and then choose to not follow and believe them. We don't have to go along. And so this is the ongoing work we have to stay engaged with, off and on the cushion. But even when we have some level of awareness and understanding, the process of the self-creating mechanism, even if we understand that, we can still get triggered, still feel stuck and held back by life. Because the eighth consciousness contains plenty of seeds from the past and there's no way to know what kinds of seeds will potentially get triggered and manifest. There's no way to know ahead of time. So Jin Shan's question is very reasonable. Knowing, knowing all that and knowing that resistance is futile, understanding that we are disintegrating with every passing moment, knowing that there is nothing there to grab a hold on to. There's nothing there to protect and defend. Knowing all that, why do we still find ourselves going along with reactive patterns? And we do. Yushan, uh, being the younger, younger one and maybe still feeling insufficient in the Dharma, is dealing with this question using a simple and logical analogy. Here is the explanation, he says. Bamboo shoots will eventually become bamboo, but if you use them now for rope, to make bamboo ropes, can you make them serve the purpose? So bamboo, they used to use old mature bamboo, they used to take, peel it off and use the, the outer layer to weave into a rope. Now, if you take a young bamboo and you make a rope out of that, the rope will not be as strong. That makes sense, right? And there is, this question appears in earlier texts from the time of the Buddha and is dealt with in a similar way. Once the Buddha and his congregation were invited to a feast at the house of a rich merchant, during the meal, Manjushri asked, is there anyone who knows the unborn nature of life and is held back by life? And the young girl by the name Antisha got up and said, there is the one who clearly sees, but his strength is not yet sufficient. is held back by life. Now this, to the logical mind, right? This makes sense. Both answers make sense. 
I'm held back because I am insufficient. Right? I haven't been practicing long enough. I haven't passed enough koans. I haven't said enough. I don't understand enough. Therefore, my power is insufficient. Well, you can't blame me for reacting. Right? So it makes sense if we think in such a way. Right? In a way of something that will later on become, or I will later on become. We often talk about maturity in practice, which we have to know how to understand, how to hear. And we even have levels that indicate a progress. We have Dongshan's five ranks, the ten ox herding pictures, with us four level of, levels of jhana. In our practice is jukai. And in Soto, there are two levels of ordination. Dharma holder position, Sensei Roshi, Rinzai, ordained practitioner, Osho, Roshi. And those are, those can be helpful traditional elements of practice, but if we don't use them skillfully, they can create the illusion of insufficiency. Well, I'm not a Zen teacher or ordained, or I have not taken Jukai yet. And even with Jukai, right? It's not, we're not saying that only those who have taken Jukai are expected to work with the precepts or uphold the precepts. From the moment we begin practice, the expectation is the same. It's always the same expectation. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on in your mind. Pay attention to the kind of words that you use. Pay attention to the kind of actions you express. So what does that have to do with time? So are there ranks, right? We think there are ranks. And yes, as upaya, right? It works. But as Linji said, there is a person of no rank, always coming in and going out through the portals of your senses. There is a person of no rank. There is someone who doesn't have to wait, who is not waiting, who is always expressing. But often our reactivities are so quick that we don't see it. Or we don't give it a chance to manifest itself. It wants to manifest itself. You know, we did the Boken outside earlier today. And I, I explained the cut, right? So the raising and dropping of the arms. And, and the focus is, of course, to be as relaxed as possible not loose in terms of the grip, right? You're still holding strong, but then everything is relaxed. So when you raise and drop, you're not trying to do anything. You're not trying to chop. 
you actually stop trying so hard. And the less we try to raise and drop, the more powerful the cut will be, the movement will be. So we get out of the way to allow something within us to take over and manifest itself. The body is also controlled by manas, which again takes, takes a hold onto the seeds and manifests itself through that. So trying is also an expression. Trying too hard is an expression, a manifestation of the same error. I need to do this. I get exhausted and I get nowhere. And when I let go and I don't try to do it, it just happens. It flows. So in the case of raising and dropping a book and contracting too much is like having a... a a flow of water in a hose and basically taking the hose and grabbing a hold onto it, and squeezing it. It's going to restrict the amount of water that goes through. So we restrict the energy because we don't trust. Or what we trust is the muscles that we know. We know the muscle. I can work on the muscle, I can strengthen it. Right? Maybe it's not as strong, but it will be strong and I'm going to make it strong and use it. And that is limiting. But we don't know that it's limiting because that's all we know. So we get in touch with something deep within us and then we have to trust it and allow it to express itself. And when it expresses itself, we have to be careful to not say, I did this. Because as soon as we do, Manas gets involved again. Of course you did it. Sign your name. So others know that you did it. So Zhushan is using this analogy Maybe as an excuse, maybe he's just wants to say to see where the dialogue goes, right? So he's pointing at some kind of gradually I will get there, but I'm not there now. We are not there now. Or that is the reason why we're held back by life. And so Jinshan says, later on you'll be enlightened on your own. Now when does now become later? Right? We have to ask, when does it happen? Or what do, I, what do I think I still need to do in order to arrive there? Right? We think this way. But then when we look at what it means, what do we find? Why not now? Why not now? The footnote under the question, clearly knowing the unborn nature of life, why we stayed by life, says, watch for the nose pin. Right? Watch for the nose pin. Watch what you tell yourself 
is holding you back. Right? The nose pin, right? The ox, not, not the decoration one. The one that we put on an ox in order to take the ox where we want to take the ox, that's the nose pin. So there is a nose pin and that we are tethered to something that we believe, we trust, that is produced by manas. And it makes sense because things did happen in the past and those things are affecting us now. But this is the time, this is the place. While we have this active, impulsive consciousness, as we were talking about yesterday, while it is actively impulsive, we have to do the work, we have to do the practice. Not when it calms down or when it will calm down. Maybe it will never calm down. Is that a problem for us? Now, without awareness, if we're not aware, manas will keep creating a sense of a fixed self that is based on seeds of the past. And those seeds will be the nose pin that the mind will believe and stay tethered to. So, and we have to be careful because if I'm saying I'm going to wait until I get better at this, I'm just, I'm actually watering specific kinds of seeds that create what I'm trying to get rid of. It makes sense. It really does, in a different way. It makes perfect sense. So it makes perfect sense to wait, but it makes perfect sense also to not wait, depending on how we look at it. Or depending on what we, the stories we tell ourselves. So if I'm saying bamboo shoots will later become bamboo, well, right now, of course, I can't use them. It makes sense to wait. But if I'm not, if I'm not going in that direction and I'm looking at this moment, this opportunity, and I'm aware or I practice awareness, then it makes sense to not wait. So Zhushan responds by saying, I am just this way. What about you? <coughs> what about you? And Jinshan ends by saying, this is the superintendents, this is where the superintendents live, and this is where the cooks live. And the footnote to this line says, he hits the ball to another place. A great way to stop the mind from churning. Right? And, we, and this is what we need to do. We need to intercept this very convincing storytelling that is always going on in the background. We need to intercept it. How? By looking at life. Looking directly at life itself. That could intercept it. Because this is not affected yet by what was. 
or by me, or by the eye. It's just the way it is. It's neither bad nor good, it's just the way it is. And it can act as, a, as an awakener, even momentarily, it can act as an awakener. And we, we say we practice awakening, we don't wait for awakening. Never mind enlightenment. Never mind enlightenment as a future idea or goal. We have to get rid of that and practice enlightenment now, today. Or it becomes another story. Which we think we're going to replace with the story we have now. So if we want to practice realization, if we want to experience it, we have to awaken moment by moment to what's going on. And that awakening is also shedding light on the propensities for harm. Right? So if you stop spinning the wheels of the mind for a few seconds, you look around you will see that everything is offering a direct way to reconnect with a deeper sense of being, with the unborn. Unborn sometimes sounds out there. I have no idea what that is. But reconnect with life as it is. And it's always available, even when we feel stuck. So everything is offering a direct way to reconnect to step out of the mind, to step out of the storytelling mechanism. And it will be equally true to say that everything you see around you is offering a way to get trapped and get entangled. I don't like what I see. It should be otherwise. You should say something else. You should be somewhere else. Then I'm stuck. Not because you're there doing what you're doing and I don't like that. That is not that has nothing to do with that. You can go somewhere else and obey exactly what I just said. That will not free me. Because I'm not stuck because of you. I'm stuck because of what I am tethered to. There's nothing to do with you or circumstances. Now, the mechanism that propels the mind to weave stories and grasp them is automatic and impulsive. And we have to recognize that. Right? All we have to do is recognize and be proactive in intercepting, intercepting a fascination with the spinning mind and again and again turn to the practice instead of following after thoughts and emotions. Turn to the practice. And when we say practice, we are not saying we are practicing so we can become good later on and do something later. That's not what it means. Although some have written about it in such a way. Practicing for what? That's a total misunderstanding of what practice is. 
we're practicing this, which means we're not waiting. And the, one of the good uh, uh, things about using the word practice is that it means that we are always beginners. We always are beginning. Which means there are always plenty of opportunities and we always don't know. We go to the known, we go back to the same spinning mechanism. Back to manas, back to feeding the same thing. We step out of that, go to the unknown, brand new. Then we're alive. So today, here, now, right? At this moment, we can observe the workings of the mind, of the mind discerned between, learn to discern between unwholesome seeds and wholesome seeds. And we feel the difference. Right? There are seeds that make us feel anger, feel sadness, feel contracted, alienated, small, unworthy. Of course. And again, it makes perfect sense that we will feel this way. But we don't have to nurture them, right? So we can abandon those seeds and nurture seeds of joy, of happiness, of caring, of supporting one another, of being there for each other. So we need to do that every day, every moment. It's the only way. And we have to be very diligent about it, which is where the introduction, what the introduction is pointing at. He says, the one who hears the scent-bearing elephant has already gone with the flow. Even the one, even one who knows the, that birth is unborn is stayed by birth. If you go on talking about before concentration, after concentration, making bamboo shoots and making bamboo ropes, you'll be marking the boat when the sword is long gone. So the Nirvana Sutra talks about solid practice and illustrate, illustrates it using three animals crossing the river. An elephant, a horse, and a rabbit. And it says when a rabbit crosses the river, it scoots across the surface. When a horse crosses the river, sometimes its feet touch the bottom of the, of the river and sometimes it is floating and the feet do not touch, which is neither here nor there. Now, and when an elephant is crossing the river, its feet always touch bottom firmly. And some commentators say that the Japanese word tete, which means thoroughly, comes from this story about how an elephant walks. And our Zen practice must be thorough and firm-footed, like an elephant crossing the river. Which means we have to be thoroughly here. We have to be intentional, deliberate. Deliberate. Then we are firm-footed. Doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Doesn't mean we don't mess up. We can be firm-footed about that too. 
Right? We can fall down, mess up, clean it up, laugh about it, move on. Or we can fall down, mess up, and then, oh my God, what have I, what have I done? I'm ashamed. Now that, what is that nurturing? Or where is it coming from? Right? That impulse, I feel terrible. Right? About myself. But if it happens when nobody is around, I don't think we feel so terrible. Right? If we mess up, clean up, move on, well, thank God nobody saw that. Right? <laughs> I don't have to feel ashamed. Right? This is how we are. But it, the thing is, you know, when we look at it, it's telling us, it's teaching us something about ourselves. It's teaching us how manas work with the Allah Vijnana on a very personal level. So the, the line says, you'll be marking the boat when the sword is long gone. This is referring to a story where a warrior's sword fell into the water <clears throat> during a boat ride and he quickly marked the side of the boat on the, at the spot where he lost the sword so he can go back and look for it. Right, you get the point. Yeah, so that's what we do. So the verse, empty and at ease without dependence, lofty and serene, untrammeled. And the footnote says, pulling apart the golden chains, untrammeled, unhindered, having no parameters. You know, a tremble is a tool to, that you can stick in the center and make a, make a surrounding circle, right? It is tethered to something. Because of that, it creates a specific kind of shape. When you remove it from what it is tethered to, it's not obligated to any shape. It's free. Home and country peaceful, those who arrive are rare. A little bit of power divides ranks and grades. Footnote says, forcibly creating subdivisions. So a little bit of power, right? Or worldly power. By that, if all we see is that, then of course, I am not. I don't have that power yet. I am insufficient. Following the conventional mind, yes, I'm insufficient. So there is worldly power and there is spiritual power. Worldly power is always limited. It's kind of like muscle power. It's limited. Yes, you can make it stronger to a point. But it is, it is limited to that particular muscle. And then if you, if you see it that way, if you try to use that particular muscle, you're not allowing this particular muscle to be supported by the entire body. So the muscle feels alone, disconnected, disjointed, alienated, insufficient. The fluid, clear mind and body is beyond right and wrong. 
footnote says, if you see the strange as not strange, and then right and wrong ended, the footnote to that says, the strangest disappears of its, by itself. Right? So the fluid mind and body is beyond right and wrong. Now, this is strange for us. The fluid is strange. In fact, it's not even strange. Sometimes it can be scary, right? You sit in Zazen and you lose parameters, right? You, for some time, from, for seconds or moments, you're not following your thoughts. And then there is, what's happening here? Right? I don't know who I am. What, am I still here? Is the body still here? Right? And it can be scary. So, because, and strange, this is why they use the word strange, so we run back to what we know and think about something so we can find a handle to grab a hold on to. Or we can say we draw a handle so we can grab a hold on to. Right? The three, 3D uh, printer. You create one, grab a hold on to it, thank God, here it is. I have something to hold on to. I know who I am. Because if we don't go to the thoughts, if we don't entertain thoughts, do we know who we are? Or if we're not reactive to other people saying something that we don't like, again, we don't know who we are. By reacting, we affirm who we are. Because I'm saying, I'm not like you. I'm like that. Reactivities don't just happen. They actually serve a purpose. They help us create something and sustain it. So if you see something strange is not strange, the strangeness disappears of itself. So again and again, we, we have to disengage from the mind, from thoughts, not stop it from doing what it's doing, but pull away from it, come back and practice being, just being. And then get more and more comfortable with that discomfort of not knowing. And the last night says, standing alone on earth, there is no beaten track. There is no path. There is no track. There is no way to get there apart of this. Because it's not there more than here. And we don't need a beaten track. Well, we do. Because we go astray. But the, the practice itself, or the Dharma itself, does not need it. So as long as, as you think, or we think later on, I have the power to confront my habits, you are practicing in accord with this thought. And give yourself permission to not confront your habit right now. Bamboo shoots will eventually become bamboo. Not now. I'm too weak for that. The commentary brings up a point that actually is very related to this point. It says, pity that my mind is clear, but my power is insufficient. Time after time, seeds produce manifest patterns. Those seeds. 
Like a man gone crazy from wine, no sooner sworn of drink than finding some fine liquor. Now, I don't know anybody who cannot relate to this. Everybody, all of us, if we're honest, we can relate to that. We know what this is about. So we can't, we don't want to wait for the seeds of the Alabijnana to go anywhere, since they are present because of past events or things we have encountered. We get triggered. We feel bogged down by life. We feel stuck. We feel sad, lonely, alienated. And all of it makes sense. Or it makes sense that we will have such thoughts. But those are not the only seeds we encounter. There are other seeds. There are also seeds of Buddhahood, love, care, compassion, joy, gratitude. There is another way to be. You know, recently we talked about how the forest is teaching us interconnectedness, right? How everything supports everything. I don't know if you notice, but to the side there, there's a tree that just fell on another tree, right? And, and the, the tree that's still alive, I don't think it was so bogged down by that saying, why did you fall on me? I did nothing to you. You should fall on him. <laughs> right? But they just do what they do. You need support? No problem. I'm here. I'll support you. It's very natural. <clears throat> There's so much we can learn just by looking around, looking at ourselves, looking at our reactivities, looking at life, looking at animals, looking at other people. We can learn and we can apply and we need to apply. So the introduction ends with kicking the wheel of potential into motion. How can you particularly travel on one road? So kicking the wheel of potential into motion, actualizing the fundamental point. That's the task, to actualize the fundamental point. So here, we connect with it, right? We, we take a few days to focus just on that, to connect, to remind ourselves who we are to examine, to look at how the mind works, how habits function in us. So we learn something. And then we have to keep that portal open to the source, to the unborn, to God, to whatever it is you choose to call it. It's not going anywhere, ever. So the fact that we feel bogged down by life and in the city or at home or with family or whatever, doesn't mean it's not there, it's not accessible. It just means that these are the seeds that are arising in me right now. And I understand that this makes sense because these are the, the kind of circumstances that will trigger these particular seeds. So of course I'm gonna feel this way. 
So how do I meet it? And how do I not react while I feel reactive? And it's very important because there's a lot of insanity around us. So it's very important that we learn how to witness it, how to bear witness, or even to read the news these days. It's gut-wrenching. So it's urgent, which is the point. Which means do not wait. Practice now, practice today, and keep it alive.